is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. So this morning we're going to start a new series on, uh, on the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is widely regarded as the most important prophet in Israel's history. His name means Yahweh saves or Yahweh is salvation. God is our salvation. Next week, Lord willing, if Earl and Brenda uh, get well, Earl will be back. And at some point, Earl's going to finish our series on, on pressing forward in 2022. But we're going to go ahead and, and dive into our next series of, of messages, which is going to be in the book of, of Isaiah. Isaiah lived in Jerusalem, and he prophesied uh, directly against Israel, the northern tribes, against Judah, and against other nations. Jewish history says that Isaiah was of royal descent, that he may have been the cousin to King Uzziah. Uh, That probably gave him liberal access to all the kings of Judah. One of the things that we'll see uh, throughout his his prophecies is that he seemed to come and go amongst the Jewish kings, probably because he was of royal birth at some level. The biblical account in chapter 1 says that the visions that Isaiah records for us, he received during the the reigns of kings Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, which is a time which uh, goes from Uzziah to the Assyrian king Sennacherib, Sennacherib, who takes away Israel. About 40 years, last half of the 8th century, he was for about 40 years the prophet in Israel. He was married to a prophetess, according to Isaiah 8.3. They had two sons in the name of prophetic names. Their names had something to do with Isaiah's prophecy. They were Shir, Jajub, Jahub, uh, Isaiah 7, meaning that a remnant shall return. That one makes good sense to us, right? A remnant will return from, uh, from Babylon, something that Isaiah did prophesy. Uh, his second son, Maher Shalal Hashbaz, uh, Isaiah 8, means speed the spoil, hasten the booty. When we get there, we'll figure that one out, okay? But his sons were named as a prof- with, a prophetic, with a prophetic meaning. His life and his family were signs to Israel. In the same way that his, his prophecies, I think, are signs to us today. Isaiah breaks down into really two, two books. The, the first book, 1 through 39, and I say book, you know, there's no chapter divisions, but there's really the subject matter in 1 through 39, and then there's 40 to 66. It divides kind of between the denunciation in the first part and the consolation in the last part, or if you would, the condemnation in the first part, and then the comfort in the second part. And so I'm just going to leave it at that. That's sort of how the book breaks down. Having said that, there are, you know, if you go out and watch the Bible Project, they do, I mean, they get into all the intricacies, and you'll find that in the first part of of Isaiah, there are prophecies of condemnation, quite a few of them, but there are some prophecies of hope, even as we'll see this morning. And, And then there's the same thing in the last half of the book. So there's some overlap when we talk about consolation or condemnation and consolation. There's some overlap in both books, but Basically, the first part is Isaiah's woes to Israel, to Judah, and to other nations. The last part is going to be God's promise of comfort in the future. 
And my goal this morning isn't to start the book of Isaiah and go all the way through it. I looked at a bunch of different pastors and how they broke down the book of Isaiah. And, and some of them did it for two years. So I just really, really wasn't interested in that. I didn't think it would really be all that helpful to us. So we're going to take Isaiah, which is a long book. He's, the, like I said, the, the, the greatest prophet or one of the greatest prophets in Old Testament history. So we're going to take it in bite sizes. I think we're going to devote about 10 weeks to it, get us close to Resurrection Sunday, and then those things we have planned. And we'll come back to it probably in the winter of next year. We'll pick up and we'll continue on in the book of Isaiah. And we've got some other things planned in between then and there. So that's, that's the plan. Um, I do believe, though Isaiah was uh, over a millennium and two centuries ago, I do believe that there's a lot of things that Isaiah said that are super important to those of us who follow Jesus. There's a, there's a lot of things that he, say, that he says that the New Testament writers would pick up on and they would say Jesus is the fulfillment of these things. So there's going to be a lot of good things for us in, in this study uh, as we go through Isaiah. Jewish tradition says that Isaiah was sawn in two by King Manasseh, that he was killed by, by being ripped in half. The Hebrews 11.37 may allude to this. Y'all remember that text? That's the hall of faith, the, the men of women of God who have followed faithfully. And it talks about some of them not receiving the blessing that they were looking for at that point, but it's coming in the future. But Hebrews 11.37 says, and some of the Old Testament saints were sawn in two. And most people believe that that's a reference to Isaiah. Manasseh was a terrible king, an evil king. It says of him that uh, he seduced the people of Israel to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord was destroyed, destroying before the children of Israel. And that he shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end uh, to another. So he was a gruesome, uh, evil man, and he's probably the one who killed Isaiah. We have very little information about Isaiah's life, nothing really about him personally other than the tidbits that we'll read throughout uh, his his prophecy. But again, his, his life, his ministry, his writings are of tremendous importance to us today. So turn to chapter 1. Have you ever been sitting somewhere and God tells you to do something and, and you don't want to do it because it's really hard and it's scary and you're not going to be very good at it and all that kind of stuff ever happened to you? What do I always say? We need to step out of our well, I'm sitting there this morning and God says, do it different than you've planned. And y'all know I'm very manuscript oriented, very note oriented. And I'm sitting here thinking, do I do it? <laughs> God, you'll forgive me if I don't, but I really feel like you want me to do this. So I'm going to change. So guys, don't put any of my notes from here on out. The little notebook paper you have in your hand isn't going to help you because I'm going to change things uh, around and I'm going to instead of what I had chosen to do was go through the chapter and break it down as it breaks down. And then at the very end, I was going to give you some applications. I'm going to change that. And this is going to be really hard, so bear with me. This might be the worst message I've ever preached. Uh, most confusing. I don't know. We'll see. Spirit, I'm praying that the Spirit of God will, will help me. But uh, I'm going to change this, and I'm going, to, I'm going to start with my applications. And then I'm going to go back to the text and try to prove them from the applications. If this was all in my notes, it'd be really easy, but it's not going to be. Let's pray. Father, help me. Help me do well on this. Help me communicate by your Spirit in a way that challenges us. Lord, there's some really, there's some really specific stuff for us today in this text, and I pray that you'd help me to communicate it in such a way that, that we receive it, that we hear it, that actually we're broken by it, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So here's my first application from Isaiah chapter 1. I'm going to try to read the text as we go along, but here's my first application. There is great disappointment in the heart of God when we, his people, live in unrepentant sin. I'll say it again. There is this really great disappointment to the heart of God when you and I choose to not respond in faithfulness and obedience to God, but we live in unrepentant sin. We break the heart of God. If you would go to, uh, go to Isaiah chapter 1. This is what's going to be so hard is because I've got it all written down different. But in chapter 1, verse 2, it, Isaiah begins this prophecy. He says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows his owner, the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know my people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation and people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have utterly estranged. Uh, they are utterly estranged. You know, one of the things I wanted you to note as we begin this, this talk through Isaiah 1 is he's not, he's addressing the children of God. You guys know this is a really big pet peeve of mine. I do not believe we need to conflate us as believers, the body of Christ with America. I do not think they're the same thing at all. I think they're very, very different. We are a Gentile nation. That doesn't mean that we haven't been a Gentile nation that's been blessed by God, but we are not a replacement for Israel. And when we talk about the people of God, we have got to separate ourselves from our, from our nation. In this particular case, he is addressing his children. The people he's addressing are us, the body of Christ. He's not addressing a, a, a heathen nation, a foreign nation. He's addressing God's people. So if we're going to make this a one-on-one -on -one comparison, he's really addressing us. And the thing, again, that I want you to note is that, that he says that our unrepentant sin is super injurious of him. And what he does in those first verses, I don't know if you notice it, but he gives us a bunch of synonyms for being sinful. I'm going to take sinfulness as, as the primary one. He calls him a sinful nation. The word sinful means to, to offend. It means, we, we often say it means to fall short. It does. It means to fall short of God's expectations of us. It means to fall short of what God desires of us. That's what sin is. And, and one, one commentator says the, the thing about sin isn't just that we miss the mark and fall short, but we intentionally fall short. But the thing I want you to notice in Isaiah's writing is all the synonyms of sin. The first one would be rebellion, right? It's funny, this commentator says that sin is really not just missing the mark, it's intentionally missing the mark. But notice that he says, you are rebellious against me. You have purposely gone against me, against authority. When you purposely rebel against authority, when you purposely disobey authority, you are in rebellion against authority. He says, you're rebellious. He then says to his people, he says, you've rejected me. The donkey knows his master. The ox knows his crib or he knows his, his master. But you guys don't know me. And it's not that they don't know him. It's that they are rejecting him. They are rejecting this king that's been their king from the beginning. They're rejecting him. So rejection, to be sinful, to be, in, to be, I don't want to use the word, to be unrepentant in sinfulness is to reject the Lord. It's to be in rebellion against the Lord. 
He says iniquity. He uses the word iniquity to describe them. He says you're crooked and you're wrong behavior as contrast to walking in faithfulness to God. He calls them evildoers, evil as juxtaposed to good. They're evil. They don't do good. You see, when we walk in unrepentant sin, we're being evil. He goes on, corrupt, children of corruption. Corruption means to destroy. Sin destroys. You guys are tearing down, he says to them. Forsaken. This is the idea of leaving and abandoning. It's the word that's often used in divorce. They are forsaking the Lord. They are abandoning the Lord. When we walk in unrepentant sin, it's, God says, it feels like you're forsaking me and abandoning me. And he uses the word despised. You once, you, you once looked at me favorably, but now you despise me. To despise him is to look with disdain or to dislike. Now you don't like me. And then I've chosen the word separated. You've chosen, which is really similar, I guess, to forsaken. There's a lot of overlap between these synonyms. But he says, you have turned your back on me. It's to separate yourself from me. And that's Isaiah's indictment against Israel, God's people. And I want to tell you that when you and I, as the sons and daughters of God, you and I, the men and women who believe in Jesus and have faithfully taken him as our king, and we, and we walk in unrepentant rebellion, unrepentant sin against him, it's like we're turning our back on him. It's like we're, it's like we're being, we're forsaking him. We're saying we don't like you anymore. We're rebelling against him. We tend to minimize sin. We make jokes of sin. Like the woman who goes to confess to her friend and says, I got the sin of pride. And she says to her friend, she says, yeah, every time I look in the mirror, I think how beautiful I am. And her friend says, that's not a sin. That's just a mistake. <laughs> we, take, we make jokes. I got several of them here, but it's all out of order. So, but I remember that one, right? But my point is this, all these jokes about sin, why do we joke about sin? We joke about sin because we're trying to minimize its effect in our life. We're trying to, we're trying to somehow cast off the, the fact that it's so injurious. Listen, not, to each, not just to each other. I mean, our sin is injurious to each other. I mean, it injures others when you and I sin against God and sin against one another. But it hurts the heart of God. And if there's an application from Isaiah's words for us from so many centuries ago... It would be just the same. Our creator is still injured by our sin. And again, our God doesn't need us. Our God is not beholden to us in any way. But yet our God loves us. And you know what? You can injure someone who loves you by hurting them, by rebelling against them, by, by disregarding them. And that's what the people of Israel have done and that's what I'm saying to you. We cannot do that anymore. We, we've, got to be, we've got to say, no, we're not going to do that. Sin breaks the heart of God. Here's my second application from Isaiah's words. Don't, don't substitute spiritual activity for repentance. Don't substitute doing things for God that we consider spiritual. Don't, don't do that. Don't substitute that for rebellion. I mean, for, uh, for repentance. Let's go back in, uh, in, the, in the text. And in verse 5, God's, excuse me. Okay, so I'm out of, I'm out of order. I'm going to read 5 and following, but this, is, this comes from other verses. Why do you want more beatings? Why do you keep on rebelling? The whole head is hurt. And the whole heart is sick. For the sole of the foot, even to the head, no spot is uninjured. 
wounds, welts, and festering sores, not cleansed, bandages are sued with oil. Your land is desolate. Your cities burn down. Foreigners devour your fields right in front of you. A desolation like a place demolished by foreigners. Daughter Zion is abandoned like a shelter in a vineyard, like a shack in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. So you know that point I just gave you? Hold that one for a minute. Let me give you another application here, okay? This is going to be the worst message I've ever preached. When it comes to how I preach, which is logically in an order. But here, here's, here's, here's the application for us from what he just said. God disciplines us for our sin. That's, that's the point. Isaiah is saying, you guys are being disciplined for your sin. And what's it going to take? Every part of you is being disciplined. Your whole, the whole country, every, all of you. Remember, remember, Israel is different than any other nation in the world. Israel is God's people. Israel's like the church. It's like God saying, I'm disciplining the church, all of you, because of your unrepentant sin. But the point that the, 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 the application for you and me is this, that God disciplines our sin. Now, this is really hard for me. I don't know about you. When I was a a parent of a young child, one of the things I learned about discipline was that I had to be clear and I had to be consistent. In other words, my children had to know why they're being disciplined. They had to know clearly what would be disciplined. And then I need to be consistent in it and not arbitrary. So that one time I discipline and one time I don't discipline. So they don't know what to expect. Well, a lot of times when I think about God's discipline of us, it sort of feels that way to me. Because I, I, you know, I do something wrong and, and I, I don't necessarily experience any negative ramifications from it. There's no pain from it. So am I being disciplined? I mean, why isn't God dealing with me? And then, and then another time I get this pain, kind of like Micah was talking about, that's not really related to sin. And I don't know how to deal with that because it's, it's coming at me and there's, there's no connection between my pain and, and sin in my life. That's what happened to Job. But here's the truth. The truth of application for them and for us is that God disciplines us. Listen to Hebrews chapter 12 in the New Testament. And you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly or lose heart when you are reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and punishes every son he receives. Endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is it that a father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, which all receive, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we have human fathers discipline us. We respected them. Shouldn't we submit even more to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time based on what seemed good to them, but he does it for our benefit so that we can share in his holiness. No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Maybe the Lord's just talking about the kind of discipline that I might put on my children to maybe make them work out or have a devotional time in the morning or something where I'm trying to train them. Maybe that's what he's talking about. But it seems like he's talking about disciplining us when we do wrong, right? Again, he says here, if, you know, what son, if you're not disciplined, you, you know, you're not really a son, you're illegitimate son. Sometimes when I sin and there's no correlation necessarily with my discipline, it's like, that makes me worry. But I think about this. I, I thought about my discipline of my children. 
The discipline of my children wasn't always punitive and it wasn't always painful. In other words, sometimes the discipline of my children would be to sit down with them and to have a a talk with them and share with them from my heart and challenge them. And that was my discipline. Maybe it's just the mercy of God that, that he's not disciplining us with pain, but rather disciplining us with that work of the Spirit in our heart to challenge us to repentance and, and to bring us back to repentance, which kind of goes back to my first point of application. Wow, how it hurts the heart of God when we're unrepentant in our sin. So when God disciplines us when we've done wrong and he speaks to us and his spirit is, is you know, he's, his spirit is bringing that check in our spirit that we've done wrong and the spirit of God, I mean, God begins to deal with us in our heart. You know, maybe that's his discipline and it doesn't necessarily in, involve pain, but sometimes it does. Sometimes God brings the, you know, my father would do that. He would discipline me that way. He would talk to me sometimes, but sometimes some would go into the bedroom and he'd get his belt out and, uh, you know, then I would learn the discipline of pain that I might, and that I might walk in righteousness. So, so there's another application for us. God disciplines those of us uh, whom he loves. So now back to my applications, right? And uh, so before I get to the one I've already given you, because I'm kind of out of order, <laughs> I want to I share with you that if you are alive, God's mercy is available to you. Listen, people of God, if you're in sin and you're alive, God's mercy is available to you. Let's go back to the text. And in the text, right after what I just read you, right after I just let, he talks about how he's disciplined the city, how he's brought a lot of pain against all of them. Um, But then he says this in verse 9, if the Lord of armies had not left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom. We would resemble Sodom. Gomorrah. In other words, if God hadn't shown us mercy, man, his discipline would have wiped us out. He, he would have removed us from, from all that. He would have destroyed us if it wasn't for his mercy. And, and so there's an application for us today. You know, if you're here this morning and you're walking in unrepentant sin, you know, and, and I, I kind of bet there is someone here like that. That, you know, I mean, you love God at, at some level, but man, you are walking in rebellion to him now. And you, you are not walking in faithfulness and you are, you're doing evil and, and you've rejected and you've turned your back. Listen, I want to tell you something. If you're hearing my voice and you're alive here this morning, there is mercy. There is mercy for you. God is, God is more, he is wanting to, to forgive us. All right, now that brings us to my application that I gave you way too early, right? Which was, don't substitute spiritual activity for repentance. Let's go back to the text again. And in the text, after verse 9, let's look at what happens next. Verse 10, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. He calls them Sodom and Gomorrah. Did you get that? He's calling his people Sodom and Gomorrah. And then he says in verse 11, verse 11, what are all your sacrifices to me? Asked the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings and rams and the fat of well-fed cattle. I have no desire for the blood of bulls and lambs and male goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires this from you? This trampling of my courts. 
Stop bringing useless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons and Sabbaths and the calling of solemn assemblies. I cannot stand iniquity with a festival. I hate your new moons and prescribed festivals. They have become a burden to me. I am tired of putting up with them. That's the heart of God as people came and they did their their ritual acts of worship before God. Here's what he's saying. You guys are living in unrepentant sin. You've turned your back on me. You've rebelled against me. You've rejected me. You've forsaken me. You've separated yourself from me. And yet you still come and you do your worship things and you somehow think they mean something to me. You somehow think that I'm pleased by you doing those acts when in your heart you haven't repented. That application, I think, is true for us today, just as it was for them, that, that we are so prone to want to, instead of, instead of responding in faithfulness and obedience to God, we want to give God trinkets of, of doing religious, traditional things for him. And, and I try to think, what might be some of those things that you and I would, would try to give to the Lord? What, what do we try to cover our sin with? And I think it would be things like... Um, you know, we, we're, I'm going to come to church more, right? I mean, I got to go to church because, you know, you're feeling the guilt and shame of your sin. Instead of repenting from it, I'm, I'm going to go to church more. Or I'm going to get involved in ministry. Or I'm going to volunteer for the children's church. Or whatever it is that you think might just somehow please the Lord by you adding this activity to what you do. I'm telling you, that's not what God's looking for. He says, I can't stand it. I can't stand your rituals. I can't stand the stuff that you do. Now listen, do you think it pleased God when people in faith did those things? Absolutely. Those were the expectations that God had as a way of demonstrating love for God. Those were the expectations that he had. But when people did it, who were walking in disdain to the Lord, he said, man, I'd rather you just not do that. Who told you to come trample my courts like this with your unfaithful, unrepentant sin and, and do these things? Who, who told you that? Tend church better, do a ministry, have more, more devotions, read my Bible more. Man, you should, you should read your Bible more. You should be here every Sunday at this gathering. Make no apology for telling you that. You should do ministry. Each one of you should have a place in, of service and ministry in the body of Christ. We have some folks from other churches here. I mean, that's true for whatever church family you're a part of. You should be involved in ministry. All of you should be doing all those things. But if you're substituting those things for what you know is sinful in your life, then God says, it's gross. I can't stand it. Please, please don't do it anymore. Sorry. But he goes further in verse 15. He says, when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will refuse to look at you. Even if you offer countless prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. If you spread your hands out in prayer, if you raise your hands to me and you pray, and you're living in unrepentant sin, he said, it's like your hands are covered in blood. The things that he points out to them have a lot to do with justice and, and, and caring for people. And he says, I see your hands as being blood-stained when you raise them up to me. I don't, I don't hear your prayers. I refuse to look at you, even if you offer countless prayers. All right, back to the application. 
The next application, what happens next is this. And I don't know how to, I don't know how to make this application because um, I, I, I said it different, but um, in the text, I know what he's going to call them to. So here's my application. If you're in sin this morning, repent. If you're in sin this morning, turn from your sin. Stop sinning. Stop excusing it. Stop trying to substitute something else while we continue to sin. Stop. Repent. Turn back to the Lord and do right. Do what you know he wants you to do. This is what it says in the text. Go back with me to the text. Verse 16. Wash yourselves. Cleanse yourselves. Remove your evil deeds from my sight. Stop doing evil. Stop doing evil. Cleanse yourself. You know, in, in, in one of the Sunday school classes, we're studying through the book of Matthew. And, um, and, and John the baptizer begins his ministry like this. I, I don't know, Dickie quoted this this morning, and I recognize it as my words, but I don't know where he got it from, so I may have told you all this already. But, but John the baptizer begins his ministry like this. Repent and cleanse yourself from your sins. Stop sinning. Be baptized as a symbol of your, of your cleansing, of your desire to be clean. But you know what? You, you check me out. It's true. Jesus begins his ministry like this. Repent, for the kingdom of God is here. When he sends his disciples out, the 12 of them, he says, go out and say, repent, the kingdom of heaven is here. The first word in all of their preaching is repent. And then, and then when, when Paul begins to preach in front of Agrippa, when Peter preaches the message in Acts 2, they say, what should we do? He says, repent, repent. And then what does is, what is Paul do in front of Agrippa? He says, repent. That's the first thing in his message, repent. Everybody begins their messages with repentance. Now the word repent means to change your mind. But if you go to John's ministry in, John, in Matthew chapter 3, it's so impossible to avoid that repentance is changing your mind so that it changes your actions. He says, he says to, the, to the Pharisees and the religious folks, who warns you to escape God's wrath? If you want to be baptized, bring forth fruit of repentance. So, so repentance is a change of our mind, but it's not just a change of our mind. It's a change of our mind like Isaiah is calling he, these folks to do, to stop sinning, to turn from your sin. Folks, listen. Here's the application for us 1,200 years later. We've got to repent of our sin. We've got to turn from our sin. We've become so, my, I'm pointing 10 fingers at myself. We become so complacent. It's so easy to just choose to walk in sin and say, God's going to forgive me. Isaiah is saying, no, guys, turn from your sin. God is, man, it breaks the heart of a God who loves you, not because all of you who might be listening later and saying, well, God doesn't need us. God has no need of anything. He's self-sufficient. That is all true. But God loves us because God is love. 
And you know, when you and I are turning our back on him, we are hurting him. And so guys, it's not good enough for us to tolerate sin in our life. An unrepentant sin that we know is wrong and not fight it and turn from it and deal with it. We have to repent. So I'm calling all of us to repent here this morning. Isaiah, listen, repentance isn't just turning from sin, everyone. And the danger is I can preach too long. Repentance isn't just turning from sin, everyone. It's turning to faithfulness to God. Look at verse 17. Look at your text. 1,200 years ago, Isaiah says to them, stop doing evil, stop doing sin. And then in verse 17, look what he says, learn to do what is good, pursue justice, correct the oppressor, defend the rights of the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Man, those things aren't even on our radar screen when it comes to sin. They need to be. But my point is this. Isaiah is calling them from turning to turn from doing evil and to turn and do what is right. So, so repentance isn't just about us turning away from sin and, and rebellion against God. It's, it's replacing it with loving Him. It's replacing it with being faithful to Him and following Him. Next point of application. I only have two more, so maybe, we'll, maybe, we're, maybe we're okay. Here's my, here's my next point of application from Isaiah. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. And you say, I didn't see no Jesus in that passage. And you're, you're not going to find him. You're not going to find him by name. But verse 18. Come, let's settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are crimson red, they will be like wool. Come get washed. And, and, and here's the illustration he gives us. Crimson red was a dye that once it was in the cloth, you couldn't get it out. You couldn't get it out. I mean, you could, you know, I, you know, if you ever washed your white underwear with a red shirt? I think some of us guys have done that. I remember I did that. I, I guess it was in college and I had pink underwear forever. And uh, of course, not a lot of guys got to see it. But, you know, I, I still wore it anyway because I'm cheap, right? I'm cheap. I'm going to wear pink underwear. You can't get the red dye out. And yet Isaiah says, come let us reason together. And though your sin be as scarlet, yet it shall be white as snow. And I mean, we've had such an illustration this past weekend of that, right? After the snow is looking out over how white it is, how white the snow is. So that's how, that's how Jesus will cleanse us. Or that's how God will cleanse us. And, and, and come let us reason. That's on the heels of repentance. That's on the heels of us turning from our sin, changing our mind about our sin and turning from our sin. Come, let's reason together. Though your sin be like crimson red, yet I'm going to make it like snow. My brother Don is in the midst of a spiritual revival right now. He's my youngest brother. He lives in Arizona. And I'm telling you guys, I mean, he is... I mean, God has just worked in his heart so much. But here's the thing that I want you to know. At the core of his revival is that God has forgiven him. That he's forgiven in Christ. And you know what? He had an episode a few years ago where he felt like he failed the Lord. That he didn't follow through on something God had given him. And I'm telling you, he walked dejected for 
a couple of years. And I would try to speak into his life. The past is the past, Don. And you, you need to forget the past. And you need to, you know, the future is what lies ahead. God can forgive you. And God, God has forgiven you. Now, now walk in it, right? I don't know how it happened, what happened to him. But the truth that God has forgiven him has radically changed his life. And I'm telling you, this is what you and I need to understand. Here's the application from Isaiah. Come to Jesus, and though your sins be as scarlet, yet shall they be white as snow. You say, well, wait a minute. Why do we have to come to Jesus? Don't we just turn from our sin? Um, You know, why can God judicially just forgive us of our sin when our judges can't do that? Our judge, you walk into a court, we have a lawyer here this morning, right? I won't call her out. But, um, you know, we have a lawyer here this morning. And, and, you know, and again, she knows so much more of the law. But I know this, that it's not right for a judge to go in and say, you're guilty, but I'm just going to let you go. I mean, I, I know there's intricacies to the law and there's negotiations and all of that. But a judge cannot just excuse violations of the law. I believe that applies to our relationship with God. God's not only our creator, the Bible calls him our judge. And so the reason why that God can say, come, let's sit down and reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, yet they're going to be white. It's because God knew. God, Isaiah didn't. I don't think Isaiah understood it. But God knew that he was going to send Jesus and Jesus would make it so that our sins, the scarlet, could be as white as snow. Here's Isaiah, the same prophet. Chapter 53, just listen. I doubt Isaiah understood this clearly, but this is what he says. God's going to send somebody in the future. And this person, verse 5, would be pierced because of our rebellion. Remember the words for sin? Pierced because of our rebellion. Crushed because of our iniquities. Hey, there's that word. Punishment of our peace was on him. And we are all healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all turned to our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. See, Isaiah, again, I don't, think, I don't think Isaiah understood it as good as you and I do a millennia, 200 cent, two centuries past that. I, I don't think he understood. No, it's a lot longer than that. What am I saying? Anyway, however long it's been, right? Three millennia almost. Three millennia later, we understand it better than Isaiah did because we're looking back. And Jesus was the one who would come and bear in himself the iniquity of us all, the sin of us all. He would die for us. He'd be punished for us. Verse 10 of Isaiah 53 says, The Lord was crushed, was pleased to crush him severely and to make him a guilt offering. And yet he will see his seed. He will prolong his days. And by his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. Jesus was a guilt offering for us. He paid for our sin. Come let us reason together, Isaiah says. God said, but God was knowing that Jesus would make it possible for God to say, I'm going to wash you white as snow because Jesus would bear in himself our sin. He would be crushed for our iniquities. He would be broken. We even even did that in the Lord's Supper. He was broken for our sin. And yet, and yet, and I love this verse, yet he will see his seed. We're his seed. We're, we're the ones who are following the king. He will see his seed. He will prolong his days. God will prolong his days. God raised him from the dead. And by his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. By God's hand, God raised Jesus from the dead. All right, last application. 
The last application that I had for you. Come to Jesus this morning. Listen, by the way, if you reject Jesus, you cannot be washed white as snow. If, if, you, if you reject Jesus, you will not have life. If you reject Jesus, you will be broken and crushed for your own sin. It's only through Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. Hey, guys, I know you're the followers of Jesus. I'm trying to encourage you. I'm trying to tell you, everybody, we have found the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. He's worthy of you following him. He's worthy of you loving him and obeying him. Number five, my last application. Let's take the message of Isaiah 1 and share it. That was Jim's message last week. That was Dick's little message. Of, was it last week or two weeks ago? Whenever it was. You know, it's not enough just to march in line. We've got to play the notes. We've got to sing the song, so to speak. We've got to tell people about Jesus. And my application from Isaiah chapter 1 was, we need to take the message that you can be forgiven. You can be forgiven. Now, in all this hodgepodge of stuff that I've said to you this morning, there's one more thing I've got to say. It's not an application. I just got to say it. Guys, when it comes to obeying God, none of us can obey the Lord completely. All of us fall short. All of us, even, even in our best of moments, we're, we're going to have times, even now as followers of Jesus, where we stumble and fall short. I'm, I'm not trying to say that, you know, if you, if you follow Jesus better, he'll love us better. I'm not saying that. doesn't love me any less when, my, when I stumble. I disappoint him. I hurt his heart. That's, that's part of my application for us. But he doesn't love me. You remember the prodigal son story? The, the little son, the young son who wanted his, his stuff and went off. The father never stopped loving him. Never loved him less than the son who was faithful and obedient all along. The older son who was faithful and obedient all along. The father said, everything you have is yours. But remember the young son? He said, but man, I love him, and I've never stopped loving him. And though he was dead, now he's found, now he's back. So guys, I'm not, I'm not telling you, obey God better, and he'll love you more. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying love God better, and, and you're going to get better things from God. Everything's going to go wonderful. In your I'm not saying that. Micah, and his little talk this morning, already proved to us that, man, you can be following God, in it, and, and you not get everything you want, or it might not go the way you want. But what I am saying is this. If you love God with all your heart, and I know you do, then, then let's be faithful to him. Let's not allow sin to reign in our lives. Let's do what Isaiah said. Let's turn from our sin. And let him cleanse us. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check out our website at baconscastle.com to get to know us and see what God is doing locally here in Surrey. Be blessed. Thank you.